You're listening to Directions and Dialogue, a podcast where playwrights speak passionately about their craft. I'm David McKibben, and in this episode, I'm sitting down with Rebecca Kane. Rebecca is a playwright, stage manager, indie theater producer, merch girl, and oat milk enthusiast. Her writing has been staged by the Rising Sun Performance Company, the Naked Angels Tuesdays at Nine readings, the New York Theater Festival, the Tank, and the Rogue Theater Festival, among others. Some of her works include Almost Maimed, Tight, Ha Ha Nice, and I Name You. In this episode, we'll talk about what inspired her to write Almost Maimed, along with her experience creating content during the COVID-19 pandemic. So let's take our seats before the curtain rises. Today, I'm sitting down with Rebecca Kane. She is a playwright, stage manager, and producer based in Astoria, Queens. Rebecca's plays have been read or performed at festivals such as Lady Fest at the Tank and the Road Theater Festival. She also worked with companies such as Urban Stages, NYC Fringe, the Orlando Fringe, Juilliard, and the Playwrights Horizons Theater School. Earlier this month, Rebecca was recognized with a $5,000 City Artist Corps grant from New York City. She's currently an ensemble member of the Rising Sun Performance Company. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. And is it true that this is your first time being interviewed in a podcast? Yes, this is my first time being interviewed in a podcast. So excuse me if I get nervous or pause or talk way too quickly. I'm sure that will not be an issue. Uh, We're going to start relatively quickly with a few basic questions. Who are you? Where do you come from? And what got you into theater in the first place? Well, I'm one of those, they call them multi-hyphenate theater artists that you hear so much about. I got into theater back in high school. I was a major drama club person. I'm pretty competitive, but I'm not that coordinated. So I couldn't do sports. So I did competitive drama club instead, which I think you're pretty familiar with too. Florida, especially South Florida has a pretty rigorous um, competitive drama circuit. And I got super involved in that and decided I'll just do this for the rest of my life. I'm pretty content doing it. Wonderful. And while you were competing through Florida State Thespians, what other programs did you participate in when you were living in South Florida? I assume you were also involved with the Florida Stage Young Playwrights Festival? Yes. When I was in high school, already there was a pretty strong focus for me to do both stage managing and playwriting at the same time, Mm -hmm. which is an interesting sort of mix. And I don't remember it super well. Because unfortunately, very unfortunately, it's no longer, I think, in production of any kind. But when I was in high school, Florida Stage in South Florida was a company that had a very robust program for young playwrights. And I was encouraged after doing pretty well at a couple competitions to enter by my drama teacher. So I entered that and won a couple things in the Young Playwrights Festival. I won, I think, two years in a row, actually, if if I recall correctly. And they would do staged readings with professional actors of these plays, which, you know, when you're 17 (laughs) is a massive deal to have like an equity cast. Like I pretty much blew my mind. I think they also offered savings bonds, which is a pretty cool prize. I'm sad that they're no longer in service, but obviously they had an impact. I hope they had as big an impact on a lot of other young playwrights. Absolutely. In fact, one of my previous guests on this show, Deborah Zolaufer, as a professional playwright, regularly got produced at Florida Stage. So it's great to see that connection continue with you, Rebecca. 
And where did you go to college? I went to University of Central Florida. And here's the really interesting thing is that I actually majored in stage management. And I didn't even really, at least for the first couple of years, try to make much of the playwriting thing anymore because I had to focus pretty hard on the stage managing. But then I found an independent theater producing club called Project Spotlight at UCF. That sounds like major nerd alert is to be a theater major and then to also join the independent theater club. Like it pretty much doesn't get any more nerdy than that. But I owe a lot to Project Spotlight specifically. They really helped me keep my head in the game as far as playwriting goes, which was, like I said, pretty hard to do as a pretty rigorous theater program at UCF. But Project Spotlight made sure to showcase some of my plays too. From there, when you started your career outside of UCF, once you graduated, did you start stage managing or did you start working as a playwright? How did your career evolve from there? It wasn't hard to get stage management jobs, like even to the point of like being able to earn a living primarily off of that. But I also pretty quickly figured out that I didn't really necessarily want to stage manage full time anymore and devote all my energy to that. So I sort of started doing some other things in theater. I still stage manage, like I still do that, obviously. But you know, I've dipped my toe into touring, into selling merch. I work at rehearsal studios now a lot. And then I started doing playwriting on the side. It was like a thing to do. If I had a little bit of extra time or money here and there, I could do some independent readings of stuff that I had to entirely produce myself with the help of some very devoted friends. I don't know how I'm going to fit everyone's name into the Tony speech one day. I owe my success to a lot of very loyal people who just trusted that eventually it would work out for them and for me. And lo and behold, I think slowly we're getting there. I've taken a look at some of your scripts and I've noticed that from a writer's perspective, you tend to write a lot of material that is along the lines of a dark comedy or horror type genre. What sources inspire you to veer into the macabre? Are there any TV shows or movies that have influenced your writing style? That's a really interesting question. I think that one name that definitely sticks out is from a very young age, probably frankly a too young age. I got into watching movies by people like Quentin Tarantino and big time directors like that, people who did not shy away from violence or gore in any way. And I think that if used properly, gore and violence can be really interesting aesthetic tools as well as delivering plot points. Like it doesn't have to just be gore and torture everywhere. It can actually like deliver points pretty well. That's interesting that you say that because you actually wrote a parody of John Cariani's Almost Maimed titled Almost Maimed. Tell me about your experience writing that. Were you familiar with the original source material at all? Well, David, I'm sure also you, again, having been in high school drama, can attest that at pretty much every competition you go to. There will be either someone's doing a section of almost main as a one act or they're doing scenes from it. And by the time I got to college, it, it came originally from a place of a little bit of like, I'm just so sick of seeing these scenes. I can't take seeing 19 year old boys falling for each other the way they did in that play one more time. And I was just starting to get annoyed by it. So I thought like, how could I capitalize on it? And so I wrote, I think one parody scene. I showed it to my college roommate, Savannah, and she said, it's good. You should write a whole one act. And so I did. But you know what? I will say this about Almost Maine and John Cariani. The more scenes I wrote, the more it became a very loving parody. And I just wanted to write something that was really more of a send up for it. And I also made a very sincere effort to sort of like update it in certain ways, like include some hit millennial slang and also try to make it as gender neutral as humanly possible. But I wrote it a lot out of love. Fun fact, he came to see a performance of Almost Maimed. And I really can't speak enough about how incredibly kind and nice he was about it. Again, like I think way back when I was like 20, 
I wrote the first scene in it out of some sort of weird like jealousy thing <laughs> just being sick of seeing it but I have absolutely now nothing but love for John Cariani and Almost Maine. And I think that any kid that does a lot of competitive theater, I think that actually it probably has a lot to do with my education in theater is the play, Almost Maine, to be honest. Absolutely. When writing plays like I Name You or Tight Ha Ha Nice, you take some very vulnerable and even serious topics like sexual assault or women dealing with vaginismus. And you portray them with a very tongue-in-cheek sense of humor. Uh, do you think that by writing these plays in a style that's more like American Horror Story or Broad City, that you're able to open up the dialogue for these kinds of issues that women and people with female reproductive tracts face today? The thing that makes theater important is that we can utilize it as a tool to have these difficult discussions and talk about difficult matters when sometimes it's too difficult to just walk up to somebody and just like prompt a discussion about it. We can use theater and art as ways to start getting these discussions out in the open more. And specifically with I Name You, for instance, I wrote that play a lot about the gray areas of sexual assault. I think that there's a lot of discussions about things like that and about consent. And for tight about discussions about how sex should work that make things seem super black and white. But really, these things are never pretty much black and white because it's real people living them. And I think that's what makes art still very important. So finding the shades of gray, particularly for issues that are so sensitive and almost taboo in nature. What do you think were some of the challenges trying to put those issues onto paper, especially for a play like tight? Well, for tight, especially... I was just sort of thinking like, what if I'm the only person on earth who cares this much about this area of the issue? I would use these plays as examples, actually, to anyone who ever has that kind of thought about their plays. Like, what if I'm the only person who cares about this kind of story, this kind of character? And I think a lot of people have found things to relate to in these plays. An interesting message I get a lot about tight from people who have seen it or have read it an interesting piece of feedback I get a lot is even people who don't have that medical issue that's at the heart of the play still have some way to relate to it. Either they know somebody who had that or they have a partner who has it or they just have something sort of similar or they heard of it and they just sort of thought that it was something that they should care about and learn more about. Absolutely. And just to explain to the audience at home as respectfully as you can define this disorder because as somebody who is male, I don't think it's really an appropriate thing for me to discuss. I love that you said that that way. I love that. And then passing the mic when they need to. Thank you for that. So vaginismus, it's more complicated than the way I'm about to say it. But essentially, it is a medical issue that makes any sort of penetration, if you will, very painful. And a primary symptom of this is that for a lot of women, it makes any sort of penetrative sex almost impossible, depending on how severe it affects you. Interesting thing about it is if you ever look up statistics on how many people have it, the statistics are staggering. And not only that, but they're probably only really reflecting numbers of people who bother to report it or bother to look it up or are willing to admit that this is a problem for them. And I think that that was an interesting idea for a play because I think in a lot of things, especially in, in comedy and in movies and TV shows, there's a lot of discussion about I think the word is impotence I'm looking for in men, like men being unable to perform sex 
And this idea that sort of women, if it's not an issue of consent, this idea that women and their parts, if you will, are always sort of going to be like open and willing, but this is simply not the case. And it affects a lot of people, not just women, by the way, not just women who have these parts, of course, but it affects a ton of people on the daily in ways that we don't think of, especially because just as an added note, I think a lot of times our society and our pop culture is so centered on sex and thinking that it has to look and feel and be delivered in a very certain way for it to be considered successful, that I hope that tight, haha, nice, the play sort of opens people's eyes to different avenues for that. Of course. Tell us about your experience writing The Taste Matters Test Kitchen at the end of the world. I personally am a huge fan of YouTube cooking channels like America's Test Kitchen, Binging with Babish and Tasty. So from that perspective, what made you try to connect recipe videos with an alternative 2020 election timeline? Do you think that this play could still resonate given all the events that have taken place surrounding the big lie and January 6th? For the record, I love binging with Babish. I just want to say that. I love that guy. I, I think that it was interesting that there was a period of time last year when it sort of felt like in a lot of ways that the world was ending and... <laughs> And I was one of those people who was, by the way, very pessimistic and expecting the absolute worst from the 2020 election outcome. And I thought it was interesting. And this applies to, I think, influencers, by the way, pretty much across the board, not just food influencers. The, I, I was one of those people, and I was not in really a small minority of people who thought that we were pretty much headed towards apocalypse by like December 2020. And I thought it was so funny that people were still making just like food videos. They were also some of the many of them stuck at home and they were just kept making videos and kept delivering content. Like everything was kind of fine. And I decided to sort of write that little short play to sort of test the limits of how long could influencers, especially food influencers, possibly keep just doing the same thing. And then at the end of the day, also, like I want to ask, like, is that really wrong? Like, it's really not. I think a lot of food influencer videos was sort of like a safe haven for people like me. I don't even cook and I enjoy watching those videos. I also would be remiss if I did not shout out, there's a company called Online Theater Company. I wrote that play originally for them specifically because they put out a call for Halloween plays. And I thought that even that was almost meta that they were willing to go on this journey with me of like writing a play about people creating content, even in the face of danger and sort of possible societal collapse, again, depending on your point of view of that time. And like I said, it was meta because we were also making a play about that, considering the fact that I think we made and recorded that play in October and November, 2020. So (laughs) kind of ironic that we were doing the same thing that the characters were doing pretty much. I especially agree. We both write plays. We both have done theater. I work in communications. I'm creating this podcast. So just creating this kind of content now in the middle of the pandemic, as we start to see this kind of political divide. I mean, today, at the time of this recording, California's recall election is still going on. Yeah, it is. (laughs) So the fact that we are actually thinking about is content even relevant anymore or is worth putting up at a time where we don't even know what's going to happen in our world? It's just, it's such an incredibly interesting point. The point of view I come from as a theater person, and I wonder if you agree, is it's just sort of like I kept doing virtual readings back in like May 2020 because like, frankly... I didn't know what else to do. I mean, I was out there, you know, I was also involved in protests. I was doing a lot of reading and workshops at the time. So I wasn't also like wasting my time or anything. But it's interesting because I think sometimes we don't really have many other tools to get through stuff like that. Absolutely. And I'm totally on board with you about this. In your latest play, Crawl Space Blog, 
Yeah. You invite audience members to interact with a blog representing your show's main character. Yes. Have your blog's followers influence the writing process for this play? No, that's an interesting question. So far, no. I don't always have a lot of trouble getting people out to come out and see my plays. Um, getting people involved with social media around my plays has been kind of a different story. That's all been kind of slow to start. So I have like a small handful of followers on the blog, but, and this is also, I should also be posting on it much more frequently. And I think I will bump up the posting as we come closer to October 17th, which is when the staged reading of the actual play will be. But the interesting thing is that people have been pressing like the like button on it, but they haven't really been commenting. So I wonder, I don't know, that's just also an interesting, unexpected perspective. We had one comment. I had one comment on one post and it was just sort of like a smart Alec comment. <laughs> so I didn't really know if I should even respond to it. That said, since your main character in this play is writing a blog for this entire experience that she has renting rooms, I'm thinking of myself, there should be some ounce of interaction here that is like audience to artist. And where do you think that meta theatricality comes into play since she's essentially delivering a blog to the masses while dealing with these characters? An interesting element of social media and again of influencers too is I don't want to like squirrel too much about the play, but pretty much it's revealed pretty quickly and consistently that this girl doesn't really have, first of all, many people reading the blog. So I guess in that way, the social media, the Tumblr is kind of working out. Um, and when people do read it, their commentary is super unkind, which I think is like in line with how a lot of people do interact with social media. And so I sort of enjoy exploring the elements of like what would possibly make her continue to put out this content if it's like more or less unsuccessful and people aren't reacting well to it then like why would she keep posting and that happens a lot i see that a lot with influencers where it's like the feedback they get is consistently negative and it's sometimes violent very violent feedback and it's interesting that they just still continue to do that they continue to choose that as a career path it's interesting the image that we know from things like the D'Amelio show probably yes. and from any other content about influencers is we have this image of them sitting there on their phones scrolling through content that's just negative like negative horrible comments and I don't know it's interesting to sort of like use this play to explore what would motivate people to do that. As a writer and as an artist do you think that mentality is just as applicable to your work? I think so I am like vain enough to say that I am seeking very frequently like positive feedback pats on the back I don't think I've ever really received a very public review of any of my plays which I'd love to see one day but I'm also going to be the first to admit that the second reviews start turning negative I'm probably going to stop reading them and so that's interesting to think of people who voraciously consume things like negative reviews of shows that they're in or bad comments on Instagram and stuff because I don't know I think it's just as an artist we say we're always just like looking for validation but I think we're looking for very specific types of validation that could be interesting too is that maybe some people are even purposely seeking some sort of negative feedback as a playwright what exercises do you use to get yourself motivated to write a particular piece of work is there anything that might strike your interest to write a particular topic or do research or just put something down on paper is there anything that you would recommend to a beginning playwright for example absolutely i had a feature in local theater usa a couple months ago about primarily about type and when i mention an idea to somebody that i'm having for a play and they say something back like huh i don't see how that's going to work out on stage or like, that doesn't sound very realistic necessarily. That is absolutely the most motivating thing anyone could ever say to me. 
And so that is the absolute top piece of advice I have for somebody is if you have an idea that will not leave your head and you think, oh, but that won't work on stage. Oh, but no one is ever going to be able to afford to stage this. Or even if you just think like that's a dumb idea, then I would say just write the first draft anyway. Who cares if it does turn out to be really stupid? You don't have to show it to anyone. But I've written plays now about food influencers getting their houses bombed. Um, I've written plays about vaginismus. It's all working out pretty okay for me. And I mean, let's face it, like there's somebody out there who wrote a hip hop musical about one of the founding fathers. And I think that's working out pretty great. And Stephen Sondheim said that wasn't going to work. So I would encourage everyone out there, no matter what, no matter how dumb your idea is, or if you think it's already taken, whatever excuse you have, stop using that excuse and just write it down. Like the worst that could happen is you waste a couple hours. All right. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca, for joining us today. Be sure to download Rebecca's plays on the New Play Exchange. If you're not a member already, it only costs $12 a year for a basic subscription. Also, if you are currently in New York, be sure to join Rebecca for a reading of Crawl Space Blog at The Tank, located at 212 West 36th Street in Manhattan. You can follow Crawl Space Blog on the link below. Thank you very much for joining us today, Rebecca. I am so happy to have interviewed with you today. David, thank you so much for your time. It's my pleasure. Stay tuned for another episode of Directions and Dialogue. Be sure to like Directions and Dialogue on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our episodes are available for your listening pleasure on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Directions and Dialogue is produced and hosted by David McKibben. Music comes courtesy of Twin Musicom.